This is the Bob Account Podcast brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers online casino and sportsbook app today. Bob is still out. Richard Deitch, kind enough to join us for the week. Thank you, Richard. Of course. Happy to be here. And uh, we got a couple of interesting guests today, a little bit different. We, we'll split the show because there's lots of issues to talk about in uh, in sports ownership and, and some people getting acknowledgments. But uh, before we do that, we should probably touch on uh, the good and the bad of the Toronto Blue Jays, who um, have been under a lot of pressure recently. And all of a sudden, they lose Friday night to the worst team in baseball in the Oakland A's, but come back with two very important victories against the A's on the weekend. And the only question I can ask is, how did they lose Friday? That's the one that bothers me. Yeah, you don't want to give up. I mean, these are easy wins, honestly, uh, against the A's. And you won two out of three, so you won the series. But, like, you know, these the, the, the American League wild card, John, is going to be very, very tight. So all these games matter. What is very clear about the Blue Jays, at least from my perspective, in addition to the fact that they've really struggled when it comes to uh, – you know, hitting in uh, runs in scoring position. It's vital Manoa comes back and pitches well. That's really where the season, I think, is going to lie because at a certain point, you know, you're going with four starters. You're going to yeah. you're going to tire everybody out. I, it, it, he, ha- it, he has to come back. Maybe he doesn't have to come back as Alec Manoa of last year, but he has to come back and be a serviceable pitcher, or I think their season's cooked. Well, you know what? They did get a, a pretty good outing from Kikuchi uh, He's been yester- great. yesterday. Uh, uh, probably an extra inning and a half out of him with, takes the pressure off a, a bullpen that's a little burned out right now, too, yeah. when you consider how much they've been used. Um, and the San Francisco Giants coming to town, so that's another... Uh, I, you hope it's a winnable situation for the Blue Jays, but w- when you look at these standings in the American League East with everybody over five hundred. Now everybody in the wild card race, if not the divisional championship race, uh, you cannot take one day off. Period. You know, and yeah. the old the old cliche of well, if you win two of three, uh, I- I'm sorry, if you're outside the division and if you have an opportunity, you're a better team than the team you're playing. You better sweep. You better yeah, sweep I mean, every, every one of those games. I remember a couple of years ago when we were all on the air saying uh, Russ Atkins would be like meaningful games in September. Well, that's going to happen. But um, it, this is going to be a very, very tight year. The The American League East is very, very good. And you have one team that's maybe, John, at this point, even impossible to catch in terms of the Rays. So you're really competing sure. with, you know, for these other teams for a couple wild card spots. But uh, I, I do believe they will make the playoffs, but I'm, my hypothesis is on that um, Manoa comes back and is serviceable. Well, you know, it's always, well, the Yankees, yeah, they're pretty close to the Yankees. The Red Sox, well, the Yankee, the Red Sox aren't that far behind the Jays. The real story of the division might be the fact that Baltimore, hundred percent, is a giant factor again. And we all saw their improvement last year, Richard. We all saw that they were going to be a better team. I don't think anybody thought they were going to be this good. And John, they got a great farm system. Still, they have the best prospect in the major leagues in Jackson Holiday, who's Matt Holiday's kid. They mm-hmm. have Gunnar Henderson just came up. Adley Rushman looks like he's going to be an all-star catcher for years. The Orioles are going to be a problem heading forward for many, many years. That's a legit team. All right. So let's talk about a little business and a little bit of honor. Um, When we come back, we're going to talk with Brian Cooper about Larry Tannenbaum's position inside the ownership of MLSE and what the next few months will bring as Larry sells part of his shares 
to a pension fund here in Ontario. Pension funds in the Toronto Maple Leafs happen again. It's hard to believe. That's on the Bob McCowan podcast. Richard Deitch, John Shannon, and Brian Cooper is next. Back after this. Two for close. Two okay. We'll do a quick. Uh, I'm going to throw it to you. You can tell me your Bradley stuff, and we'll get out of here. Hi, this is Bob McCowan for BetRivers.com. Hey, if you're looking for a sports book or casino app, you should check out the Bet Rivers Sports and Casino app today. Play all of your favorite casino games for real money anywhere and anytime. Plus, get in the action with each sports game with hundreds of sports betting options. And get ready to feel like a VIP because you'll earn both loyalty level points and bonus store points on every real money wager you make. You must be 19 plus, available in Ontario only. Please play responsibly. If you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone close to you, contact Connex Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 or speak to an advisor free of charge. BetRivers.com. Welcome back to the Bob Account Podcast. Richard Deitz and John Shannon. As we uh, make our way through the few weeks of June without Bob for a few times, he's a little under the weather. Joined now by, as McCowan would call him, our business editor, Brian Cooper. <laughs> Brian, welcome. Good to be here. So um, you and I were chatting last week a little bit when the news came out that Larry Tannenbaum potentially was selling part if not all, but part of his shares in MLSE. And quite frankly, you weren't surprised, were you? No. Uh, you know, I, you know what? First of all, Larry's done a tremendous job in building this business along with his two telco partners. Uh, the, the entity valuation, you know, has increased to probably one of the uh, most highly valued sport enterprises in North America. Um, they've done a tremendous job in expanding uh, the business from uh, the teams to multiple teams, uh, the venue to multiple venues, the restaurants, their merchandising. At one point, they had their own broadcast uh, networks as well. Um, but, you know, I don't think it's uh, <clears throat> a secret to many people uh, that uh, the telcos have an opportunity to buy any shares that Larry puts up, and there's a certain time frame on that. I think Larry made a smart move uh, that he didn't sell the shares directly uh, to Omers, uh, but he sold uh, shares of his company, his holding company, Gilbert uh, Sports, uh, to Omers. And what it really did was uh, set the bar in terms of what the valuation of this is going to be uh, for when the eventual comes. Uh, where the telcos buy them out. So, so we. Uh, I'm sorry, Richard. I just okay. as a quick follow up. Um, so, this, it, it, in your opinion, it was an inev inevitability that Larry's going to be out of the picture at some point in the near future. At, at some point, uh, you know, you know, there has been, and you've, we've all heard it on the street. There has been. There's a deadline date on which the two telcos, uh, when they did the deal with Larry, when he brought them together smartly. Uh, that uh, they had an opportunity uh, to purchase his shares at a certain point in time. Uh, and at that point, it'll be market value. I think what he's done here is is really set the low end of the market uh, of what uh, his shares would be worth. You got to realize, um, 
you know, this is the, the NFL doesn't allow uh, corporate partners or it's limited and they want an individual owner. These two telcos are faceless corporations uh, that, you know, have the majority shareholder uh, or majority shareholders equally uh, in MLS and E. Larry is the minority shareholder, but he is the face of that organization. He's the chairman of the board of the NBA. So he's got the trust of Adam and, and, and all of the other owners around the table. He's been sitting on the board of the NHL for years now. He's an experienced sports enterprise owner. Um, those corporations, you know, they, while they may have representation in those spots, they're really not the face of that. Larry is. Uh, so there's great value in that. Uh, yeah. And go ahead, Richard. No, I was going to say, Brian, I think you just hit on what I wanted to get into. And actually, you use the expression that I would use sort of this, this telcos really are faceless organizations. There's real value when it comes to Larry Tannenbaum in terms of his relationships with Masai Ujiri, his relationships with Brendan Shanahan, his relationship, if you want to call it that, with the public to inform yes. the public that things are going to be okay. What I wonder about, and this is what I think should at least alarm, maybe that's a little too strong, but the concern Maple Leafs fans and TFC fans and Raptors fans is when he goes, like what, who is that person who can link, you know what I mean? The sport organization, the MLS, and beyond that, who, if I'm a fan, who is sort of speaking for me in the boardroom when it comes to these places? Well, and yes, you, you, I agree with you hundred percent. He is the connection between that organization and the general public, the ticket buying public, the 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 board, other board members at the NBA and the NHL. And if you look at any corporation, whether it's Jamie Dimon or or you know Bill Gates or you know large corporations, Elon Musk, it is that one person that sort of represents to the public that you know my hands on the tiller, we're going in the right direction, uh, and you know think we're going to win a championship. You know, none of those other uh, uh, organizations are out there saying that. Edward Rogers isn't saying it. Uh, uh, Mirko at, at Bell isn't saying it. In, in many cases, in Bell, it's a revolving door of, of CEOs. Rogers is a different story. Uh, while they have a CEO, there is one majority owner in Edward Rogers Jr. So, you know, I think it's been a comforting place to have uh, Larry there. What happens when he leaves is anybody's guess. I got to tell you, though, they have been without a president at that organization for 18 months. Um, and, you know, the organization continues to run smoothly. Uh, and I think that's because they have set it up differently and uh, where Masai Jury reports to the board and Brennan Shanahan reports to the board, as opposed to the traditional organizations, you would have the president and both of those presidents of basketball and hockey would report to the enterprise president. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot up in the air here. If Larry, if and when uh, he does leave, which I think is inevitable, uh, and the telcos take over, and yet there is no president there, and will the structure change? You have lived in Toronto a long time now, yeah. Brian. Um, is there any town like this one when it comes to ownership of sports? This this is a this is such a strange place when it comes to the ownership of uh, you know I mean let's face it of the NBA team and the NHL team because the they they almost they almost run 
like a monopoly because no matter whether the team wins or loses, they make the same amount of money. And, and John, you're right. Uh, but I don't think we're alone in that. Jim Dolan. <laughs> has, <laughs> do I have to say anything, anything more? And Jim Dolan, you know, that team hasn't won. Sure, Rangers, uh, what did they win? 94, was it? Uh, uh, the Rangers won in '94. The Knicks won in the final '93, I think. Right, Richard? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Knicks but, have the Knicks have not won a championship, Johnson '69. Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no. So, no. 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 '71. '73. '73. That's right. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it 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 this is not an anomaly. I mean, it's been <laughs> done before, where the teams themselves really are the connection to the fans. Uh, you know, James Dolan has, has pissed off uh, the media. The fans, yeah, you know, the music industry. Uh, <laughs> but it continues to thrive and make money. And, you know, I, I'd like to think, you know, we're more Canadian here. We're, we're just a little passive and accepting of, okay, they're doing their best. We're still being entertained. It ain't all that bad. Hey, listen, uh, uh, MLSC has fired the general manager of the hockey team this summer, fired the head coach of the basketball team, this summer now fired the head coach of the soccer team today. Yeah. I mean, this is as, this is as much flux as we've seen in this organization in a long period of time. It, it's true, but you know what? It, it's also part of the course uh, for the sport and entertainment business. And I, I think, you know, the, the, the real issue is going to be is when the telcos take over and who they put in charge and will it be an equal opportunity? I mean, will one say, you know what? I am going to pay you so much more. I want all that content. That's, and yeah. I, I don't want to share with anyone else. And I'll be happy to do that. So and, that's you know, what I want to... I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I was going to say that. I wanted to get into that in that, like, to me, based on what you just said, the likely person for that to make that move is Edward Rogers, right? Because as you said, Bell is, of course, a revolving door of CEOs and leadership. Both companies obviously have had significant layoffs, but Bell really just had massive layoffs, right? So who knows what their financial structure is at the moment. To me, I don't want to get inside the head of Edward Rogers because that's probably not a hard, not, not a place I want to be. But like to me, it makes much more sense as, as a singular top person at Rogers to really go all in and be like, we already have the Blue Jays. Let's just get the monopoly on uh, the Raptors and the Leafs. Val valuations aside, I don't. Maybe there's not even enough. Maybe they can't even pull that off money wise. But do you agree that if one telecom was going to make that move, it seems much more likely that Rogers does that as opposed to Bell? Agree, hundred uh, percent. And because I, I think the control that they have, the voting control that they have will allow them to do that. I also think, you know, that's one individual running a company instead of just a board of directors running a company. I, I also think uh, it would be better uh, for the entire organization uh, if they had that uh, one in control entity. You know, this unholy alliance that they have we're competing telcos and they're sitting at the table. Uh, I don't think it's ever worked. Uh, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons you don't have a uh, CEO currently in place of the organization. Uh, I think content is king for, for both of them. And while they play nicely at the table, 
uh, in the boardroom. They're trying to kill each other once they walk outside the door. <laughs> That's a tough, tough way to continue to operate. Uh, so I would think uh, that Rogers would be the most likely to do it. Uh, and, and, you know, we'll see in the coming year. And I, I don't think, you know, we're going to be waiting too long before something does happen. Uh, but, you know, the first move was made, I believe, by Larry by setting the bar here. So you, you, Larry sets the price, then the other two follow along. But your argument that you made about content is king is the one reason I, if I'm balanced and I can't, I can't afford to lose this. I, I can't get out of this. And, and the whole concept of why Larry did what he did when the, when the three of them purchased the company from teachers um, and, and, and whatever group that was, you know, the, to allow that third party to become that the face was the only way that they could protect their content, Brian. Yeah, John, I, I, you know, I, I go back to the uh, when TSN lost the NHL deal mm -hmm. uh, and they and they had the team deals. I think what will happen is if, if any type of deal is struck, they'll say, OK, we're going to take control of the organization. You're getting 10 games here, 10 games here, and 10 games there. We're going to have the finals. We're going to have the championships. I, I think that type of deal. And and here's your $8 billion or whatever the, the amount is going to be. But I mm -hmm. think a deal is going to be struck. TSN didn't go off the air when they lost the NHL. And, you know, and they, they went in a different route. You know, they picked up equal number of Leaf games, equal number of Raptor games. I think they have Calgary and they had Ottawa. But, you know, they... Uh, Winnipeg they and Ottawa. Winnipeg, Winnipeg and Ottawa. Yeah. So I think there'll be some type of hybrid deal made uh, between the two telcos that allows one to have a bit of uh, the, the uh, NHL, excuse me, uh, the Leafs and the Raptors and TFC. Uh, and that's the way it'll go, I believe. Brian, um, you're, you, you have a lot of experience in business in terms of um, connecting brands to, um, mm -hmm. to, to, uh, to whatever sport team or sport there is. One of the things I wanted to ask you about when I knew you were coming on was, from your experience and research, does the Generation Z fan look at all this stuff differently, meaning that, we're talking on the one hand about Bell versus Rogers and who ultimately gets the content, right? But me, you, and John were grew up in a world where we got cable, like a much simpler world, right? We watched our games. We were willing to invest two and a half hours and sitting in front of a t TV. The as you know, the fifteen, the seventeen year old, the idea of getting them to sit down for two and a half hours for a hockey game is is insanity. They'll, they won't do that. So how does no. I guess the real question to me is, is there a world where the telecoms, if they have this valuable content, can actually still attract the younger people the way they were able to grab our cash? Well, first of all, the Gen Z, they eventually become our age. Uh, yes. and, and so they slow <laughs> down. And, and why not? right now, they're, they're a highlight uh, generation. All they want to say, and my son's that way, they, all they want to see is the, you know, the highlights of the game. And they can tell me that, did you see that score? You know, and like, as if they want watch the whole game, but they didn't watch it. But I think one day, as they get older, they become more involved and engaged and spend the time uh, because uh, they have the time to do it. Uh, I, I think uh, throw on top of that, the content is just not the linear content of the game. It's sure. everything that you're doing digitally with the game as well. And so the packages, so you can prevent, 
uh, your competitor from having any of the highlights until 24 hours after you've shown them or after the game. So they're still going to get those eyeballs. Mm -hmm. uh, they may not get them through the whole linear package, but they're still going to get them and they can insert an ad into it. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think uh, it will be the same as it is now. It's just different platforms and the content will be cut and sliced. So it, it, Richard brings up a really good point. Uh, there's three years left in the national contract for the NHL. The NBA, I think, is up next year. It is. Um, but if, if you were to sit there and advise MLSE, which has more value to for dollar, dollar for dollar, regional rights to the Leafs and Raptors or national rights to the NHL and the NBA? Because it's a really uh, strange thing in our market. It, I, I think it's changing, uh, John. I think, you know, Five years ago, I would have said uh, Leafs and the Raptors. Uh, but I think this next generation is having a more holistic view of teams. And um, the, the local citizenry uh, that doesn't have a franchise picks and chooses mm -hmm. what teams they want. You know, we you go to a game in Montreal and there's as many blue jerseys as there are red jerseys. Yeah. That shit's going to be over. Uh, and, you know, that that generational because my father, I did that stuff's over. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't know. First of all, I'm a listener. He wouldn't listen to me if, uh, if I was advising him. But <laughs> secondly, uh, uh, you know, comes down to price. What are you getting? Are you getting the playoffs? Gen Z tends to follow stars as opposed to following hometown teams. I mean, they'll right. follow both, but they're more enamored with you know Victor Wembanyama and 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 LeBron James and then they are with the actual their own team, uh, so it's a tough call. Uh, it depends: are you getting the digital platform, you know, streaming rights as well as linear? Uh, but I think it's changing. Before, so there's uh, a non-answer. There's a good non-answer for you. Yeah, that was. I tell you what, you, you know, there's the election for the mayor of Toronto today. You're gonna <laughs> run, man. <laughs> uh well as an american once again i appreciate you guys don't have endless campaigns um so <laughs> the, the um you know the the one thing that i wanted to ask you brian before uh before our time with you is up is canada soccer because they're just a big piece even today about oh. the finances of canada soccer are an absolute mess i don't know if irony is the right word but it's unbelievable that all this comes at a time where they actually have the most successful program <laughs> ever had in the history of the program so from your perspective i mean i don't know can this thing be fixed before 2026 i mean it's it's we're hearing things out of canada soccer regarding finances that honestly it's like third world stuff it shouldn't be happening in a first world soccer country no you know and uh first of all i have the transparency i'm the chairman of the board of uh, canada basketball uh so i know the nso world very very well and I really uh, don't like hearing anything that affects the NSOs, whether it's Hockey Canada, what happened in the past, or Canada soccer. Uh, look, this is pure mismanagement uh, from the top down. Um, they did a deal with, uh, with CBS, uh, uh, CSB, and that deal uh, didn't have any forward thinking to it, that if you reached a certain tier of, of revenue, that there had to be uh, some sharing, uh, there had to be uh, a renewal of, of the terms. Uh, 
over a certain time frame to do a 20 year deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no one does 20 year deals. Now, I, I think they may, they may end up uh, going chapter 11 and starting from refresh. And they have, they have sponsors that have done business with through CSB. Uh, that is, it, it, it will really damage the organization, the trust with the fans. And, and as you said, they're on, on the, on the pitch performance is on the way up. On the way down is their uh, off the pitch uh, performance. You know they, they've cleaned house effectively, and you know he came in and said, "I don't know if this is fixable," and I feel badly for them. Uh, and the government, it, what it happens is put some pressures on all NSOs for the transparency and right. to make sure, you know, a lot of these organizations don't have the most sophisticated leaders running them. Many of them come from, I played in the sport. Many of them come from uh, uh, an industry that is not really um, connected to the sports industry, which is unique in its own way. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand how they they blow through that amount of money uh, and not realizing that at the end, it's going to be red ink all over the floor. So, but in the end, is there, is there, I mean, I don't expect you to predict, but to me, it sounds like the only way to go forward is, is that Canada soccer business, the private entity that bought the rights um, would be wise in somehow, in some way to open the contract up and renegotiate. For the and for, think, for for the for the betterment of the sport, and I know that the sport. I and, know and that that's the CPL. And look, that's Scott sure. Mitchell, and yeah. Scott's a smart guy and a good guy. Yes, yeah. So I I think that in the end that may uh, be the way that they go. I think the governments are also going to have to help them out as well because I don't think uh, the the uh, general fan of soccer in this country wants to see this thing go down the way it's going down right now. Hey, uh, just to be, before we let you go, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you a real curveball because I like throwing you curveballs. Um, so we've 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 pardon the pun lived through the merger in golf. Mm. We've seen what's going to happen there. It's now been announced that the Qatari fund have now in, are going to invest in Ted Leonsis's company, Monumental Sports, that own uh, the Capitals and the Wizards in Washington. In your opinion, is is in the end this just going to be a a new level of investment bankers for professional sports in North America? Without a doubt, uh, you know, Redbird just uh, with Ryan Reynolds invested. I read this morning uh, in an F one team. Uh, you know, all sport is going global. Finances have been global before. You know, the sport washing of certain countries. No one cares any longer. You know, half the things in this house are from China, and they have the worst human rights records in the world. Uh, you know, it's it, it is a sad situation, but I, I think uh, more and more you're going to see cross investment. And uh, Fenway Sports uh, owns a uh, soccer; they own racing; they own, and so this is nothing new. Uh, and I think you're going to see more of it. Well, it's uh, certainly interesting times. And, you know, the days of when, when you came to Canada, sports was kind of a mom and pop's business, Brian. 
It was kind of, it was a particular, it, it was simple. That's why I did okay in it. Now it's too complicated. <laughs> well, I don't know. And for the record, everybody, Brian ran the Toronto Argos when he had Wayne Gretzky and, and, and Bruce McNall and John Candy as owners. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure anything was ever simple with those three guys. Well, I was just going to say that was my most <laughs> difficult position ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, Listen, thanks for the time and the insight to uh, to Larry's uh, role, certainly in MLSE, and we'll see what happens in the next, say, 16 to 18 months. Appreciate the time, Brian. Good to see you guys. Thanks, Brian, Brian Cooper on the MLSE ownership situation. When we come back, we take some time to talk with Ken Hitchcock, the newest member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. This is the Bob McCowan Podcast. Back after this. Welcome back to the McCowan Podcast. Richard Deitch, John Shannon, pleased to be joined by uh, one of the newest members or soon to be members of the Hockey Hall of Fame. Longtime coach, Ken Hitchcock, who joins us from his home in Kelowna. Congratulations, Ken. It was uh, was it a surprise to you on on Wednesday? I would say shock would be more accurate, Shani. Um, I, I didn't pay attention to the dates and. And, you know, but when Lanny's voice was on the other end, I've heard that before and I knew what it was when I heard his voice, but I, I hadn't paid attention to the timeline and um, it just, it came on pretty quick. So I was really proud and really honored, but um, Lanny's voice is that voice that, you know, when it's coming, something good is going to happen. Just curious, you've had five days to reflect and five days to think about people that made a difference for you. When I when I ask you who you thought of first, who would come to mind? Uh, obviously, my dad. And I'm one of those guys, John, that doesn't spend much in the past. I don't like I've never liked reflecting on it and always tried to move forward. So this is really a. Uh, help me pause and start to think about the people that helped me get here. But my dad, first and foremost, he was, uh, he was a huge influence. Uh, and then it was the cast of characters from the university, Claire Drake, George Kingston, Dave King, uh, Tom Watt, th those guys donated their summers every year to help us understand the, what it was like to be a coach and the responsibility you had. So I, I really started to hone in on on particular people before I became a professional coach that helped me along the way. Ken, um, you know, you know the expression sort of uh, what it's like to be alive for your own funeral. And in a parallel universe, a little bit when you get entered into the Hockey Hall of Fame or any kind of uh, great honor like that, you know, you get overwhelmed in many ways by all the congratulations you see people writing all these things about you. Um, what's that process been like to just sort of be for this little stretch, almost like the center of your own universe? You know what, Richard, uh, the part that there, there's been a ton of, of uh, terrific uh, responses by people, but you know, the one that really hit home for me was all the ex players. Um, mm -hmm. That really, makes it feel like it was worthwhile, you know, and makes it feel that that makes me really proud that guys would, you know, take time to find my phone number, 
Um, and it goes back, you know, it goes back from when I was in Kalamazoo uh, to when I was in Kamloops to obviously in the NHL. But those, those, those uh, texts or, or phone calls, they mean the world to me because it, in my mind, it means you did okay and, and you did right by them. And I'm really proud of some of the texts and emails that I've got from ex-players. I told the story last Thursday on the show, uh, Ken. The first time I have any, had any recollection of you was in Edmonton. Uh, I didn't grow up there, but I was there a lot with the Oilers, and I would look up at practice and see this guy in the second deck at the old Coliseum making drills, watching the Oilers skate and, and designing drills. It, did you have this passion to be a coach from the time you couldn't play the game? Yes. Um, I had it because of my dad. My dad was a coach. Uh, he coached minor hockey and, and I followed him around when he was coaching midget. And there was an age group called juvenile, which was between midget and junior. So I followed him around, but my passion really started to come into fold when I started attending Claire Drake's practices. And then I, I snuck into the Coliseum and watched Glenn's practices mm. and they were eerily similar. And I really thought that this is the way you need to play the game. This is the right way to play the game. And the execution by both teams was exceptional. And uh, the flow and everything, it, it really sold me on, on this. If, I, if I'm running a hockey team, these are the type of practices that I want to run. Pretty easy to coach a team with Gretzky and Messier on it though, right? <laughs> but you know, you know what was really interesting, John, was that the Euler practices were very similar to the Bears practices. And and what was really interesting to me was the system that Glenn put in place was not an NHL system. It was a system from college. And and the Bears played it. And I was really impressed with uh the way that that Glenn adopted uh, that system of play and put it in the Oilers because the, the Oilers were really the only NHL team that played that way. You know, Ken, in doing research for this interview, I know that um, you've done a lot of presentations. You've been a consultant. And a lot of what you talked about or what you talk about is leadership. So one of the things I wanted to ask you was, because this is sort of to me like the way a coach can be successful on any level. And that's how do you convince individuals to buy into a collective, whether they have to either change their game or change their mentality. But how does what have you found during the course of your years? How how can that be done to lead to a successful unit? It's one way, Richard. And no matter what you want your players to do, I've always used this term. I instruct 23 players, but I coach five. Hmm. And your relationship with your leadership, your camaraderie and friendship with your leadership has to be tied into everything. You can't expect to uh, be able to uh, make 23 players accountable. You need help. And the help comes from your leaders. So the accountability starts with your leaders and then you work hard with them so they work the room hard. If you're constantly interfering and you're having to work the room, you're having to work the group, uh, your message gets lost, the energy of the team gets lost. But if you're working with that group of four or five, whoever you decide, 
and then you send them back in the room to make sure that accountability is taken care of, you get a very dynamic, strong team. John, one follow-up for me, and that is, Ken, um, given the fact that you coached over different eras, did you find later in your coaching that you had to communicate with players differently just because of their age or their generation, let's say, versus how you might communicate with players in the 70s or 80s? Yes, and, and the big change for me, Richard, was um, the players needed to know where they were going before the buy-in started. And as it got later and later, they wanted to know what was in it for them. If they made these sacrifices, what would it look like? And you couldn't get offended by having to explain that. Whereas before it was do it, do it this way. This is what we're doing. No questions asked. Away you go. There was a lot of debate and dialogue and you had to form, you have to form a partnership with the players now. And that partnership has to have give and take on both sides. And if you're not willing to give and you're not willing to take as far as a coach in a proper manner, your, your players will never buy in. They'll never, they'll never join sides with you and you'll have a very difficult time motivating your team. At what point in your pro career did you say, I have a playbook that works and I'm fully confident about it and you weren't scared of going in the room? Um, it started at the beginning of the 1996-97 season. I came in halfway through in 96, and I got schooled, John. I brought the system. You, this is when you got hired in Dallas, correct? Yeah. I, I brought the system that I'd coached in junior and in minor pro and had a ton of success with, and I brought it into Dallas, and we got schooled. We, weren't, we didn't have the foot speed to play that way. We didn't have the size. And I was really shook up at the end of the year. And then Rick Wilson and Doug Jarvis said, Hitch, there's a different way to play. And they, we spent the summer together and they convinced me that the way that Montreal played at that time was the way to play. And they were both ex-Montreal Canadian players and they sold me on it and I stayed with it the rest of my life. So the, the interesting thing is that, you know, you're talking about your assistants there were two former NHL players. You did not play in the NHL ever. You were a good, you know, teenager as a hockey player. But did you ever feel it was a disadvantage not to have played in the NHL? Um, no, but what I did feel was I, I don't have the playing background, so I better have the knowledge. I better be smarter than every coach. I better be more detail-oriented. I need to make sure that those things are in place so I could garner the respect of the players. I, I felt, especially early in my career, I had to show them how much I cared about them and how much I cared about the details and accountability and, and prove myself. I, I felt like, like I had to prove myself all the time. And so I, I worked my ass off with trying to find that edge every summer all the different professional teams I would follow in the summer and stuff like that. I went to Europe to watch soccer. I went to Europe to watch handball. Uh, I went to Europe to watch hockey so I could learn everything I could so that I felt I had more knowledge than any coach I coached against. And when, during the course of your career, um, how do I phrase this? How much did you discover and learn about greatness in terms of greatness sort of exists in a player 
or can greatness sort of be developed and learned? You know what I'm saying? I, I understand that that yeah. even inherent great players obviously have to work, but you know what I'm saying? How much how much of it do you think is sort of naturally talented, God gifted versus those who maybe can make themselves into a great player? I think I think uh, allowing players to become great is um, is a quality of a coach that you have to have if you want to be an elite coach. And what I mean by that, Richard, is the game of hockey, in order to be great, you got to have one word going all the time, and that's respect. But the respect comes at practice. And the teams that practice with precision, with effort, uh, with second and third effort, the coaches that demand that, and the coaches that run high-octane practices are very successful, and they always end up having the players play to their potential and are very successful because of it. I think greatness can be obtained through practice, and I think it can be ensured through practice. Hmm. You, you talked about respect. Where Can you measure the difference between respect and being liked? You need to make sure that you're respected before you're liked. And you're pushing people up the, up the mountain. You're, push, you're making players uh, do things that they normally don't want to do. And yet they got to see value in that. So they've got to respect that there's going to be an end game with this, whether you're liked. Um, I don't think has, has to be relevant. You, you, we, we would all like it, but if you had to ch choose one, to mm -hmm. me, that respect factor is, is more important than being liked. I, I, uh, I asked you about uh, who you thought of, but there's some other guys that I know that have huge influences on your career. Um, and one of them is Bob Gainey. Uh, what, what does Gainey mean to you and, and, and the fact that you are now going into the Hockey Hall of Fame? John, my first 12 years in the NHL, I had Bob Gainey and Bob Clark. It doesn't get any better than <laughs> that. And these guys had a lock on winning. And they taught me so much, not about X's and O's. They never delved into that. They never got, they never got connected to that. It was all about the commitment from the players. And they both had this belief that you're either giving or taking. And if you're, if you're giving, we want you. If you're taking, we're, we don't want you. And they, they were determined in that. And they made sure that myself as a coach, that I promoted that. Hmm. I learned so much from those guys about what it exactly takes to win and how hard it is and how the, you have to convince the players that it's worthwhile and embrace it. Those guys taught me more about the details of the commitment you want the players to make than anybody else I ever worked with. Now, memory serves me when you went to Philadelphia, you actually didn't go as a coach, did you? No, I went, I, my I, first time in Philly was 90 to 93 as an assistant coach. And they gave me the option to either be the head coach in Hershey or the assistant coach with the Flyers. And I honestly felt like I was never going to get a chance to be in the NHL ever again if I didn't take that job. I went back there in 2002, and there was a bidding war, and it was going back and forth for a couple of weeks. Um, and I just I couldn't – I just felt like with Bob Clark, I, I felt like I had Bob Ganey 2.0, and I just – yeah. I, I had so much respect for Clarkie that I felt like I, I'm going to really learn from this man. What was the other? Who was the other team? Uh, I was an Eastern team. I can't say. 
it's it's 20 years ago come on you're, you're a hall of famer you can say anything now no i'll keep that <laughs> and i love asking this question of uh successful coaches because obviously you coached a lot of great players and hall of fame types but if i could ask if you could give me a couple of players that you wished you could have coached for whatever reason who would they be uh, the number one player for me, I wished I, I mean, I coached him in the Olympics, but I wished I would have had him in the regular season with Sidney Crosby. Um, I think his influence on the team, uh, I, I feel like with players like him, we could win forever because he does so many things right. And the second one, I had him for a very brief period of time and we tried to re-sign him, but he ended up going to Boston. But I had so much respect for Alex Zamnock. Um, really? He was an unbelievable player. And I, I thought coaching him, we traded for him for, and we had half a year and he was tremendous force. I just thought this is the smartest player in the world. And I, I, I wished I would have had more time with Alex. Zamnock was an interesting guy because none of us really understood how good he was because he played in Winnipeg and nobody ever watched Winnipeg. Well, and then... We made the trade. We, we ended up losing in in overtime in the conference final to Tampa. And I, and I felt like Clarkie and I both said, we, we got to get this guy signed. And we tried like crazy, but then he ended up going to Boston. Then he got yeah. hurt right away. And I, I think, I, I thought he was the most complete forward I'd ever coached or been around. And I thought he just did everything to perfection. You know, you were you were one of those guys too that you know coached in big hockey markets in the United States in Philadelphia and Dallas and St. Louis. Um, but then you got to come home, and you got to coach a Canadian team. What's it like, and how different is it to coach in, a, say, Dallas or Philly versus to coach in Edmonton? Oh, it was an eye opener for me. But I, first of all, I got to tell you, I, I've never had more fun in my life than coaching in Edmonton. Um, and I've never, I've never enjoyed a season more in my life. I know um, there was a period of time in the Edmonton season that we were in fifth place in the conference. We had just won in Colorado and we lost three players for extended period of time. That's when Clef Baum left us, Chris sure. Russell left us. And so we were thin and I know Peter was devastated by those losses, we both were. We knew we were in trouble. But we had gotten so much out of that team to that period of time, and it was so enjoyable to work with uh, in a community where the passion was unbelievable. And I'd never seen that before because, you know, when I was in the States, we were one of four. In Columbus, it was one of two because of Ohio State, but we were mm -hmm. always one of four. And in Edmonton, it was, we were the show and uh, I, I loved it. You know, I, I got lots of suggestions any place I went, but <laughs> I, I, I really embraced. Uh, Even for media guys. Oh yeah. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really enjoyed my time, myself in Edmonton. And I've, I think about that. I've, I've got friendships on the team that are friendships for life and with, with players there too. And I, I, I just, I, I said to myself when the season was over, I said, I don't think you could ever enjoy one as much as I did this one. And what's your, uh, what's your schedule going to be like in the next couple of weeks? 
Uh, I'm watching closely what's going on in, with the Blues um, at the pro level. Um, and I'm really, uh, really committed to uh, where we start a development camp on July 1st and I get to make a presentation to the coaches and I'm excited by that. I've, I've got some ideas on how we can build this thing back really quick and I'd like to implement them and I'd like to get the coaches to embrace it. So I'm going to be selling the coaches here in a week on trying to make a few changes. And I'm really looking forward to this because I put a lot of thought into it, Richard. And I think we can turn this corner quick uh, if we make these little adjustments. The uh, the fascination for me is that you have made an impact on so many different levels, where it be in junior hockey and Kamloops uh, at the NHL level. And we haven't really touched on the international experience other than you mentioning Sydney. Uh, how does how do the two level you, you've won at every level? How does the exhilaration of winning the Memorial Cup or winning the Stanley Cup or being part of an Olympic gold medal? How do they compare? Shani, I have never felt more pressure in my life than when we were in the Olympics. I've never felt more so than the '99. Yes, like I I just thought '99. 2098 they were natural progressions i felt like we're going to get this done because we're just progressing nicely but it the jolt of walking into an olympic games and and having the pressure on you that we did was was overwhelming at times and 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 then to see a team come together so quickly and and see it uh, joined forces so quickly was really, really impressive for me. And um, but it's funny, of all the teams I've coached in the in international play, the best hockey I've ever seen was in the 2004 World Cup. The hockey was better than it even was in the Olympics. Those teams were all healthy, locked and loaded. We went to lockout right after that, but that hockey was incredible. And and I, I I that best on best when everybody was kind of in the same level of condition was incredible hockey. So I, I've been lucky. I've I've seen it at the highest level, um, and I felt the pressure at the highest level. One last quick one for me, Ken. Um, and this was something that stood out to me that you had said, and I think it's a lesson that all of us can use. You've really made it a point that when you've left a place, you've left well, even if you were fired, even if it wasn't your choice to leave, you really sort of push this idea of don't, don't leave with bad blood. Um, and I guess I would ask you to sort of offer some thoughts as to why that's a philosophy for you. I feel like uh, everything with the general, I, I, I work for the St. Louis blues, but I work for Doug Armstrong and my relationship with the general manager had to be strong and I, I had to open up and I, I had to have the attitude, Richard, that I don't expect anything back, but I'm going to share everything. And I wanted to do that every place. I, I felt like I owed it to the general manager. If I was vulnerable, if I'd made a mistake, if I was looking for help, I wanted to share that. And I felt very strongly about that. And, be, and the reason for that is that I knew I was going to get let go there's a shelf life for us uh, that's that's inevitable. I knew I was going to get low or get let go. And I, I my feeling was 
when I get let go and I want to keep working, the first call someone's going to make is to my former general manager. And I wanted a good relationship left on good terms so that we could have a, uh, that call would be positive and supportive if, if I was looking for work. And I felt very strongly about that. But the biggest thing for me was give them everything, good, bad, ugly, give them everything, share it with them because you got to be joined at the hip going down this path. Well, I tell you what, Ken, uh, when the news came on Wednesday, I know there was a lot of us that uh, view ourselves as your friends uh, that said, well, they got it right with this one. And they it put a smile on a lot of our faces. Congratulations, my friend. I'm really happy for you. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. It was great being on. Ken Hitchcock, back after this on the Bob McCowan Podcast. Thanks to Brian Cooper and Ken Hitchcock. Uh, we touched on it during uh, the Brian segment. Uh, TFC did fire Bob Bradley today as as their head coach. Really isn't a surprise, is it? No, they haven't. They've That team just hasn't clicked, John. I, I will say, um, had you asked me if this was going to fail, you know, when Bob Bradley came on, I would have been very, very surprised uh, to see it fail. You know, they, they obviously brought in some really good international players. Bob Bradley has had a lot of success as a coach, but I mean, T this is, this experiment with Bradley has just not worked. And uh, in some ways TFC feels like they're back at the starting point again. That, you know, it's funny you say that because from a, an awareness perspective in the market, in many ways, they've kind of, they haven't disappeared, but they become a niche again. And, And there was a time, you know, those two championship games against Seattle, um and the and their market value again we're talking business put put tfc in in the upper echelon of of soccer teams but now they're just they're playing in front of of that hardcore sports or soccer fan again it's a great toronto is and the gta is a great soccer market but i do think you need a successful team here to you know what i mean to sort of make that market whole well it's it's It'll be interesting to see because one of the, one of the factors in the sale of MLSE is that they're valuing the soccer club at, at half a billion dollars right now, which is phenomenal when you think that they paid 20 million for the team. <laughs> MLSE t- sometimes does have the Midas touch. Anyway, thank you to Brian Cooper. Thank you to Ken Hitchcock. Thank you, Richard. We'll see you tomorrow. We talk a little bit of hockey as we prepare for the NHL draft in Nashville. This is the Bob Cowan Podcast. Richard Deitch, John Shannon. We'll talk to you tomorrow.